My name is Keith Beavers, and you guys know that the original red velvet cake was only red because of the cocoa powder added to the batter oxidized in the oven, giving it a nice sort of like dark reddish rusty color. What? What's going on, wine lovers? Welcome to episode three of Vine Pair's Wine 101 podcast. My name is Keith Beavers. I am the tasting director of Vine Pair at Vine Pair Keith on Insta. What are you guys up to? So here we are, guys. We're going to wrap this up. American wine history. How do we get from prohibition to here? Wow. This is going to be crazy. It's about recovery. Let's do this. J. Gallo Winery is excited to sponsor this episode of Vine Pairs Wine 101. Gallo always welcomes new friends to wine with an amazing wide range of favorites ranging from everyday to luxury and sparkling wines. I mean, Gallo also makes award-winning spirits, but you know, this is a wine podcast. So whether you're new to wine or an aficionado, Gallo welcomes you to wine. We look forward to serving you enjoyment in moments that matter. Cheers. Okay. So, when last we spoke, things were going great for, well, specifically for California. You know, there, there were some problems over in the East. They weren't doing so well. The hybrid situation was happening. It was producing results, not the kind of results that were happening in California, it was kind of crazy. It was a little bit messy, but it was extremely successful in that California was nurturing a future wine growing, wine making region that, you know, would hopefully spread through sharing of information and technology through the United States all the way to the East. It would have been a wonderful connecting thing, but it didn't happen because all the work that was done in California. And some of the work that was done in New York and in the Eastern States came to a halt in 1919 when the Volstead Act was, was passed, making it illegal to buy, sell, consume alcohol above 0.5% in this country. And even though Prohibition started in 1919, it had been coming. People saw it coming. And it started in the late 19th century. Um, there, there were a lot of factors here. There was post-Civil War trauma that was not diagnosed at all by like, like, like it is today. There was the disappointment by many at the gold rush that did not produce the kind of wealth they thought they were going to produce. And there was, I don't know if this, these, were, these are factors I can, I'm thinking of, but for some reason, the hard drinking culture of this country at the time was a problem and there were groups that were popping up to help create what were called temperance movements or movements to kind of calm down the drinking culture of the United States. A lot of these movements were um, supported by the church. There were, uh, well, the two most prominent were, ones were women's Christian temperance union. That was in 1874. And then the anti saloon league of 1895. This kind of built over time. And it got the attention of politicians who thought it would be a good idea to run on this. And instead of just making it a temperance movement, why don't we just put it in the Constitution and make it a law? 
And with all this national attention, this is very interesting. By the time 1919 comes around and the Volstead Act is signed into law, 33 of the current 48 states at the time, at the time were already dry. So it was already happening. So that's why politicians jumped on it and made it law in this country for a decade. It was initially thought that wine would be spared when they were talking about the law and negotiating the terms of the law. But when that 0.5% came out, I was like, okay, everything's illegal. And this basically destroyed the wine industry of the United States. Sure, we've heard a lot of stories of survival, and there were winemakers that did survive because of a loophole in the Volstead Act. Because what happened was the Volstead Act for 10 years was being amended. It was so unpopular in this country that it kept on, people kept on going back and amending it here and amending it there. And at some point, it became legal for the head of a household, whoever that is, to legally manufacture at least or up to 200 gallons of fruit juice a year. And somewhere in that law, in that little loophole, in that little, so there was a loophole somewhere in there that essentially said, hey, you can make your own wine at home. And there were home winemaking kits sort of with like bricks of must that were that you could buy, add water to with a warning saying, beware, if you add water to this, it could turn into alcohol. Crazy. There's a bunch of stories like that throughout Prohibition, but that particular loophole was important because in California, as wineries were closing left and right and vineyards are being turned into like other crops like walnuts and almonds and stuff like that and avocados, the state started ramping up vine plantings again at a pretty intense clip. In 1919, in California, there are about 300,000 acres of land under vine. Because of these, this loophole and other factors, by 1925, during the Prohibition era, that doubled. And when I say doubled, that's un, that at the time, that was unprecedented. There, was never, there had never been so many vines in California than there was at the height of the Prohibition era in, by that time in history. And a lot of that was, again, the home winemaking. There was also sacramental wine being made for religious purposes. That was a loophole. And, of course, there was a black market. And that's great for California. Actually, not great for California, but it just kind of helped California move and make money so that when this thing whole thing ended, they could be positioned a little bit well. They didn't know that at the time, but that's kind of what was happening. Other wineries around the country tried to do the same, but it's still, even though vineyards doubled in size in California, that did not translate to the rest of the country. Also, just because vineyards increased in California doesn't mean that new wineries are popping up in, in California. The winery situation in the country was very bad. You can see that with the production numbers. In 1919, the U.S. produced 55 million gallons of wine. 55 million gallons. By 1935, it was just over 3.5 million gallons. It destroyed the industry. It was only the full realization of the impact of the Great Depression on economics that helped prove that prohibition was not actually working. And it's a long, complicated story, but the way it happens is the Democratic Party sees an opportunity to run on repeal. So their campaign, one of their major campaign issues is the repealing of the Volstead Act because it was initiated and brought into law by Republicans. 
it works, and the Volstead Act is repealed in 1933. And where in the last episode, we talked a lot about just movement and things are happening and fast and quick and complicated. The history of American wine after Prohibition is not that. It's all about recovery. Exciting things happen, but it's just trying to figure out how to get back to where we were and in doing so, creating something completely new. When the Volstead Act was repealed, we were still in the deepest depths of our economic depression. And even though this law destroyed a significant part of the wine industry, there was no government compensation to help people get back on track. So what you had was an industry picking up the pieces. And unfortunately, a lot of those pieces were around in 1919. This industry was nothing. It had, California had a surplus of vines, of course, because of that loophole, but they weren't varietally specific vineyards. These were blended, mixed fields of vines just to make money and survive. The industry was uninstructed and undercapitalized. They had no money, they had a bunch of old equipment, and nobody had any expertise in anything except for what they had before Prohibition. And in addition to that, the government not only didn't compensate any wineries or businesses that had basically gone under, but they also didn't fund any research going forward. The government funded no research for wine in the industry at all. Therefore, the majority of the research that goes into wine is individual winemakers, also the universities of California Davis and universities in New York, specifically in the Finger Lakes around Cornell. But even though things were bad, no one stopped working. This is, what's, this is just what's great. And the thing about this part of our story is that it's not about individual dates so much as it about sections of time when things happen. Even though a lot of wineries were closed, there were still a lot of wineries around. Not a lot, I should say, but there were wineries around in the eastern states and in the western states and some in the Midwest. And during the 1930s, there were some sparks of hope, if you will. In the eastern states, there was a guy named Philip Wagner. He was a newspaper editor in Baltimore, but a, a very avid home winemaker. And he loved hybrids. And with experience in his, I guess you call it a hobby, he ended up writing a book in 1933 called American Wines and How to Make Them. And he highly publicized hybrids that are still used to this day that do work. Work in the sense that they have a mass appeal to them. Uh, hybrids with names of Baco, specifically Baco Noir, Sable, and Sauvignon Blanc. He writes another book in 1945 called The Wine Grower's Guide, and this guy is basically regarded as the one who changed the course of winemaking in the eastern states. He basically gave the eastern states um, a reason to continue using these hybrids that had helped the area survive since the beginning. And until the 1950s, and actually the 1980s, the eastern states were basically a hybrid growing wine industry. They, they did try Vitis vinifera, but it never worked out like it did with the hybrids. But we're going to get to that in a second. But the thing about the east is it didn't have what the west had then. And it suffered from an initial phase after the Prohibition era in that distilleries began to buy up defunct wineries just to have product to sell. And without the knowledge of the, of the varieties they were making wine from, and they were just basically making bulk wine, they would call these wines Chablis, Burgundy, 
champagne just so they could have a rec- uh, some sort of familiarity as a brand or a name that people would buy. This wasn't a long-standing thing for the distilleries, and it ended up just getting out of this whole wine-making business. And in the eastern states, it had long-lasting damage. In 1940, Ohio, which was a very important state for wine-making or trying for <laughs> wine-making you know, in the early days, it had 149 wineries in 1940. By 1960, it had 47. But in the 1930s over in the West, specifically California, because let's be honest, it all happened in California, primarily in the Central Valley of California and in the Napa Valley of California. This is where true innovation of the American wine industry really starts to begin. After repeal, you had a bunch of vines all over California, right? There was that loophole back during the home growing era loophole era of prohibition where we doubled the acreage of land under vine. Okay. So when repeal is done, there's vines everywhere and California survives on being a bulk market. And in the central Valley of California, the Napa Valley and beyond even North of that, all of this is bulk wine. And in the north, in Napa Valley specifically, there are certain winemakers that have survived the Prohibition era and are doing okay. Actually, after Prohibition, there are about 60 wineries in Napa Valley, but only a few or a small group of them became major players in turning this thing around. Old wineries like Inglenook and Below and Larkmead, as well as Berenger, start to define what Napa will become. It's all a bulk market. It's all a bulk wine market. But you have certain wineries like Below, which they were about quantity. They're, they were they wanted to make quantity. And then you had a winery like Inglenook. Inglenook was known for small production. So you already had this sort of like large production, small production happening in Northern California. So you saw that there, there, was, this, there was this vibe there. And in the 1930s, as these winemakers would gather and have meetings, one of the things that became clear through pamphlets and newsletters and writings just in the area is that the Napa Valley or the wines in this area will only be able to compete with the wines of Europe because the Eastern Coast was really all about imports from Europe is if we had a premium wine market and that's what Napa should be. So the focus of Napa, and this is a big, this is a big, it's a big hurdle here, is to make premium wine, which means they had to like completely rethink the way they make wine in Napa, and then they had to figure out how to promote it and get it distributed into the, and then actually get it into the minds of Americans and get them excited about it. That took a long time. <laughs> that took about thirty years. Not only did they have to get Americans into their kind of wine, but they also had to convince the bulk market, which was doing just fine making the money they were making, to switch over to premium wine. It was a very, very tough thing to do. So through the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s, Napa Valley was trying to become a fine wine region in the United States, trying to convince people not to do bulk and to focus on varieties. Actually, a writer by the name of Frank Schoonmaker came out with a book in 1934 called The Complete Wine Book. It became very popular in the area. And this guy, Frank, his, his big thing was, guys, you want to make this thing work? You need to put the varietal on the label. 
his idea is that it would distinguish themselves from the European imports, which is a good idea because as World War II became a reality, imports dried up from Europe and it gave California winemakers a moment to kind of promote themselves. And speaking of Europe, in 1938, George Latour, who George de Latour, who was the owner of Below Vineyards, he would go to France every year to kind of take stock of what was going on in wine. And he goes out there and he meets this guy named Andre Chelichev. He he convinces him to come to California, and Andre Chelichev becomes the Charles Krug of this era. He becomes the number one wine consultant in the area. He develops a lab. He actually starts to create, starts to understand the science of wine and technology in this area and helps people just make better wine. But the thing about making wine in America is that once you make wine, you have to sell it. There was really no holding on to wine. Sure, there were wineries that did so, but that's not how money was made. Money was made by selling the wine you make. And nobody was better at selling the wine you make than two brothers from the Central Valley, Ernest and Giulio Gallo. These brothers came up during Prohibition where they would ship grapes. They, well, they had vineyards, their family had vineyards, and they had a grape shipping business. And they would ship grapes to places around the country during Prohibition where home growing was allowed. At repeal, Ernest and Giulio Gallo were running their father's business. They had a house with some vineyards and they had a grape shipping business, right? This is a great American story. These two brothers decide they want to become a winery. They want to start making wine, but they have to be a bonded winery. Well, it just so happens that they have vineyards on their property and they have a grape shipping business. So they actually are able to become a bonded winery. They start with no money. They find a basement in a library in Modesto to start their business. They learn how to make wine from old pamphlets from the prohibition era of university of california davis ernest is on the winemaking side julio is on the marketing side and julio gallo becomes the figure in american wine who teaches us how to market promote and distribute wine if he is he was when you walk into a store and you see a bunch of wineries and they're all trying to market to you you can think Julio Gallo. And the reason I say this is, well, the Gallo's got bigger and bigger and bigger, and they eventually ended up buying a bunch of vineyard land up in the northern coast to help supply the Napa wineries and what they were doing down there. But as Napa becomes big on promotion, they actually bring in some of the former, they actually poach people from the Gallo's to use in Napa for promotion. If it wasn't for Ernest and Julio Gallo, I don't know how this all would have happened. Up in Napa, you had the Mondavi family. You had Peter and Robert Mondavi, sons of Cesare Mondavi, who was a big deal in Napa at the time. He had a co-op. He was very connected in the community. But Robert Mondavi goes to school for business, and Peter Mondavi just basically goes to school for wine, and that's who they were. They were the Ernest and Julio of Napa Valley. So Robert Mondavi is the guy who says, hey, let's start bringing people up from San Francisco to this area. He wasn't the only one, but he was part of this whole movement of getting people from wealthier parts of of San Francisco to the Napa Valley to see what was going on with the winemaking. Because by this point, things were doing pretty well. You had Andre Chelichev and all of his acolytes helping people make good wine in the area. There were a lot of players in wine, writers, winemakers in this, this era from the 1930s into the 1960s. 
But really, it was the Gallows and the Mondavis that brought each thing to the fore, to the light. You had Ernest and Julio Gallo learning how to make commercial wine and getting wine out there to the country, helping the country understand that wine is something they can actually drink daily and enjoy. Then you had Robert and Peter Mondavi up in Napa fighting to create America's first fine wine region, trying to define what that even meant, getting closer and closer to focusing on varietal wine like Cabernet Sauvignon, which had been winning awards at state fairs since the 1930s. When soldiers came back from World War II, they had an idea of a European lifestyle. In the 1950s, there was somewhat, some, it was, we were trying to emulate that a little bit, but wine wasn't really part of that. But in the 1960s, the baby boomers were kind of coming of age. And in the 60s and 70s, because of a bunch of factors, wine blows up. Not only does wine become more popular in the 1960s, but we start to see graduates of UC Davis going other places than California to make wine. In the early 1960s, some of these California winemakers were told you could not make Pinot Noir in Oregon. I'm going to talk about this in another episode. And that's when winemakers start making their way to what will be the Willamette Valley. In 1969, winemakers made their way into Washington State. In the late 60s and the early 70s, Napa starts to talk about what it would be like to be an Appalachian. They start, to talk, they start talking about varieties. They start talking about um, borders and, and, and where they want this Appalachian to be. The government starts talking about an Appalachian system. And in the 70s, start figuring out what that's going to look like. What do we call it? How do we decide what this is going to be? Because wine is getting popular. And then in 1970, for some reason, I mean, there's a lot of factors here, but wine blows up. It blows up. In 1970, California had 240 wineries. In 1989, it had 770 wineries. You go to 2004, 1,700 wineries. And by 2014, 3,800 wineries in California alone. So into the 1970s, it really started popping off. Now, just so you know, this is the thing. There were things happening since, 19, since the 1930s in California. It's, it's been a building and a building and a building. And when 1976 comes around and the Judgment of Paris happens, that is just like the boiling point and everything gets exciting from there. I mean, this is the thing, is there were these sort of like comparative French California wine tastings in California but it wasn't until the judgment of Paris that happened with its highly publicized article that really got things going. And in 1978, when the AVAs are basically being formed, Napa becomes the first American viticultural area in California, the second viticultural area in the United States. The first one went to Mount Pleasant, Missouri, where to this day they thrive on one of the most successful hybrids in America, the Norton grape. And from 1981 until 1990, I think it was 91 or 92, over 100 AVAs are awarded to the United States. And this is the thing, wine lovers. This is what begins our wine industry, really. Because California has been doing it for a long time. California was the place where climatically, geographically, Vitis vinifera worked for a long time. Yes, phylloxera became a problem, but it's, that's where it worked. There was never a problem. There was never like the issues of climate so much as there were in the East Coast. So 
California began it. And that didn't even start until the 1930s. And it didn't even become an AVA until 1981. Two Star Wars films had already come out by that time. Wine lovers. Speaking of 1980, around that time, a man by the name of Jim Law moves from California to Virginia and starts making wine there. And him and a few other winemakers become the major players of creating a wine culture in Virginia. Thomas Jefferson would be like, finally. And if you listen to the New York episode I did in the 1950s in New York state, they get Dr. Constantine Frank who helps revive the industry there by showing them how to grow Riesling. Yeah. Riesling. And by the eighties, he's established and doing amazing things, basically getting ready, getting the region ready for what we enjoy now. What's exciting to me about American wine is that we're not done. There are places making great wine that we just don't know. There are places, and this is the thing, is like when Napa was trying to figure out how to distribute and when the Central Valley was trying to figure out how to promote, they weren't really well known. And now we have little places like Contra Costa is a little AVA just out of San Francisco making old, ancient Zinfandel, a place that's being overrun now by strip malls. You have a place called the Temecula Valley down in Southern California. No one talks about that wine, but there's some great things coming out of there. Adam Teeter, CEO of VinePair, and I actually went to Pennsylvania and experienced a vineyard on a hill in the middle of a cornfield growing Nebbiolo that we drank, and it was delicious. I've had a great sparkling Albarino from Maryland. New Mexico makes some of the best domestic sparkling wine on the market at Gruet. That family's from Champagne. And if you hadn't had wine from Texas, there are some amazing things happening right now. Great Tempranillo, great Morvedra, awesome rosés. Texas has a great history with, well, it has a significant history with wine in America. I wanted to do this series because I wanted to kind of I wanted, to, I wanted to talk about that. I wanted to talk about how we have so much more to experience and that back in the day when the Mandavis and others were like, look, we got to bring people to here to see it. They don't even know it's here and we don't make enough of it to bring everywhere. So they got to come here. This is the same thing happening with the smaller places in America now. Virginia, it has, it's, it's hard to distribute. You've got to go to Virginia and drink their wines. And who wouldn't want to go to Virginia? It's absolutely beautiful. The Finger Lakes, yes, they have better distribution than before, but you have to go to the Finger Lakes to enjoy that. Texas, it's best to go there because it's hard for distribution. But at some point, if it works and the quality's right, these places will, they will grow and more wine will be available in the United States. So it's not just about California, but California is absolutely one of the most important players in our American wine history, along with New York and actually Virginia. I don't know about you wine lovers, but I get excited whenever I hear of a new place in the United States making wine. I want to rush to that place, try the wine, and I want to support it and say, keep going just like Thomas Jefferson did when people were sending him wine from Wisconsin and the Ohio Valley. Also, a really interesting thing about our history here is that, speaking of the eastern states, the, the, the hybrid, the, the, the hybrid, the, the thing that was, that saved us and the thing that we hated the most is actually 
being worked with now in the Northeast. People are making wine from hybrid grapes, but we have the technology now and we have the know-how to make wine from these grapes that the people before us couldn't do. And they're delicious. Okay, wine lovers. Obviously, there's more to say. And obviously, there's some things that I had to leave out. But I wanted to give you guys a three-part series of who we are and how we got to where we are. If you guys have any questions of something I may have left out, hit me up. My DMs are open at Keith. Let's talk. Vine Pear Keith is my Insta. Rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps get the word out there. And now for some totally awesome credits. Wine 101 was produced, recorded, and edited by yours truly, Keith Beavers, at the Vine Pear headquarters in New York City. I want to give a big old shout out to co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon for creating Vine Pear. And I mean, big shout out to Danielle Grinberg, the art director of Vine Pear, for creating the most awesome logo for this podcast. Also, Darby Seaside for the theme song. Listen to this. And I want to thank the entire Vine Pear staff for helping me learn something new every day. See you next week. Gallo Winery is excited to sponsor this episode of Vine Pairs Wine 101. Gallo always welcomes new friends to wine with an amazing wide range of favorites ranging from everyday to luxury and sparkling wines. I mean, Gallo also makes award-winning spirits, but you know, this is a wine podcast. So whether you're new to wine or an aficionado, Gallo welcomes you to wine. We look forward to serving you enjoyment in moments that matter. Cheers. Visit BarrelRoom.com today to find your next favorite where shipping is available.